0: national project on race and capitalism. Welcome to season two of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories and geographies with your host Michael Dawson.
1: My pleasure to welcome John N. Robinson he is an assistant professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. He received his Ph.D. in sociology from Northwestern University in June of 2016. Robinson works to how microeconomic changes have redefined politics of race, poverty and neighborhood inequality within and around American cities. Robinson's current book project is entitled Liquid City, Affordable Housing and the Politics of Racial Inequality in the Age of Finance. It's a mixed-message study of the affordable housing industry in the U.S. This industry offers an early and important case for understanding the growth of finance, both as a mode of track transaction and sector of the economy in the design and implementation of anti-poverty programming. Welcome to the show. I should add for the audience, affordable housing is in quotation marks.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so how you been doing?
0: I've been doing pretty good. Yeah, Still, still really mulling over. Some of the really uh, brilliant conversations I've had about racial capitalism over, over the past couple of months. So, yeah, I've been doing good. Glad to
1: hear. So, one of the questions that we usually start our conversations with is um, how does the concept of racial capitalism enter your work? I know in the paper that I recently read and discussed with you, you say that you see racial capitalism as a political back- battleground. What do you mean by that?
0: I'm saying sort of theorizing racial capitalism as a political battleground, I'm really thinking about how the capitalism itself, meaning the sorts of the parts of our society we associate specifically with capitalism, for example, accumulation and things like that. How those are in, in many cases, the target and the, the aim of political contention and of racial contention. Mm -hmm. And and it's just kind of my idea to to, um, my effort to sort of put that on the table and to have a conversation about what does it mean that people fight over these things and how to and and how can we kind of think about these things which on the one hand are sort of different from some of the other kinds of political struggles that we have studied and then on the other hand are also not the same are not I don't think they are reducible to the same old capitalism story as well and so I think that there's there's something different happening there. And so it's just my sort of effort to get out a conversation about how capitalism itself is often, and the terms by which capitalism sort of plays out, is sort of the aim and the center of uh, political contention, and, and specifically of racial contention.
1: And the way you start your paper is with a quote that I'm going to read. You, you might recognize it. To be a poor man is hard, but to be a poor race in a land of dollars is the very bottom of hardships.
0: Uh, yes, I love that quote. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think I've used it once or twice. And, of course, it's from Du Bois. And and your paper is on the community reinvestment, room, which we'll talk more about in a second. But why did you start with that quote?
0: Well, that's a great question, Michael. And it, it really, I think I think you asked me on some point about, you know, what brings me to this topic in general. And, and one of the things, without getting into all of that, one of the things is that, you know, I went to Hampton University and we read a lot of Du Bois. And, and what really stuck out to me in reading Du Bois and reading that quote in general, which has always stuck in my mind, is that It's just about the fundamental connection between race and economics, which I love to reiterate because I think that there's a tendency in our culture today to somehow separate (laughs) these two. You know, I I recall our past election where there was a narrative saying that one candidate was really attuned to racial issues and the other candidate was attuned to only the finance part, or only the economic part, which always uh, kind of irked me because it seemed like there weren't enough voices saying, you know race and economics are pretty are, are closely intertwined and so that quote always kind of brings that home to me because it is the quote that got me thinking that you know race kind of informs how we think of ourselves as economic agents and then also the vice versa is true as well yeah how we think about economic life informs how we experience our racial subjectivities um, and so that that's always sort of at the forefront of my analytical lens and that's and that quote i think just encapsulates all of it
1: I agree with that, and I have a theoretical question that I'm actually wrestling with in the paper I'm writing with Emily Mm -hmm. Kassenstein, and one question I think is a theoretical and historical question, but I think it has practical implications for how we think about politics in the U.S. And the question is, to what degree do you think that type of intertwining is intrinsic to capitalism, as some authors and scholars argue, or to what degree mm. is it historically contingent that the U.S. has uh, messed up history and it's really entrenched deeply, but it's sort of historically contingent on how colonialism in the U.S. developed.
0: That's that's something that I, re- I wrestle with myself, and I probably haven't thought about it as deeply as I should. I, I would say... I don't come down really one side or the other. I, you know, so I'm thinking of you, you might be thinking at least in one part about somebody like Cedric Robinson. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so, and what I think about Cedric Robinson's work is that I think in general on the idea that race is a part of how we distribute resources, that's, that's sort of how, that's sort of what I take away from it. And so to me, that would be the case in a society that is defined as capitalist or in some of the other kinds of societies that, that we've studied to me, that that would be descriptive of all of that. But the specific mechanisms that he gets into, I think those might be a little bit more contextually specific. Like the, so I think he gets into um, the idea that race is about dividing, race is about dividing, sort of undermining the the unity of, of workers. And I think that that is one way of thinking of how race interacts with capitalism. But I don't think that is the only way. Okay.
1: That makes a lot of sense to me. Talking specifically about your paper, um, you have a lot to say generally about the interaction of of, of race and economics, racial inequality, and economic inequality. What specifically brought you to focus on urban inequality in the housing market?
0: Uh, yeah, so that's a good question, too. So some of this is like sort of personal, because both of my parents grew up in public housing. So, so I, I've always been interested, both just in cities in general, but also in public housing in particular. I, I grew up in the Washington, DC area. Both my parents grew up in the Washington D.C. area, and they both grew up in in a public housing project. And so even when I go back home, you know, my, my father he takes me tours around the city and tells me what changed. And these tours, you know, I I think of them as gentrification tours, <laughs> uh, <laughs> almost. But on these tours, it's all it's always, you know, a prominent part of it is always kind of him pointing out to me where where some public housing towers used to stand. You know, like uh, most of them have been have been demolished. Yeah. But but you know, it's 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 a real Prominent part of his mental map of how he navigates the city, and and, you know, so I think it's that had a real impact on me. And so I've always been interested in in urban, in particular, but housing. I think in uh, when I did undergrad in Hampton, I didn't really study so much topically specific housing, but I thought more about the the uh, political economy more generally. But once I got into graduate study, I really began to study uh, public housing empirically, and that was for me the gateway into broader questions about housing for me and how it fit into the picture of capitalist America.
1: One of the many aspects of your paper that I found fascinating is that you have a critique of traditional Marxist thinking about urban inequality, but you also have a critique of how some African-American scholars have viewed urban black movements. Could you say a little bit about both of those critiques?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think that that critique, I think it goes back a little bit to some of what I just was describing about how my transition to studying tax credit. So I study this, this policy called lo- the low-income housing tax credit, which, which we can talk about in a little bit. But it's basically the main policy that we have today for providing affordable housing. And i was just been curious about how this policy came to be and sort of what are the politics of, of this policy, because it's really different from other kinds of of programs that we've had in the sense that it's administered through the tax code. But what got me to that was, as I said earlier, was public housing. And and it was really interesting to me. And I'm always thinking about the contrast between public housing and and this newfangled kind of policy thing. Because, you know, when I studied public housing, one of the things that really stood out to me is that researchers really seldomly talked about it in economic terms. You know, Mm -hmm. it was always a really political thing. You know, it was always public housing was about uh, political claims on the state and then that was separate from what we defined as market activities. you know that was a, you know so there there are these political social programs and then there are market activities which we think of as economic and not political. and I've, and I, I was always irked by that division and so I, I gravitated to a literature that really takes that division on directly. and here I'm thinking about the work of Greta Krippner, Monica Prasad. A lot of the sociologists who have studied the rise of finance, in particular, but they are economic sociologists more broadly, but they have a critique of the idea of the market in general and the idea that the market, as we know it, really exists in in, in real life. Because the real point there is that a lot of the policies that we think of as market-driven policies, or 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 a lot of the the activities that we think of as market-driven are really managed by the government in like really, uh, excuse me, not just by the government, but are managed by political and economic elites in, in, in really close and detailed ways. And this is the story, as I went into uh, in the paper, this is the story of the the Federal Housing Administration uh, and, the, and the suburbanization of America and the, and the rise of the, of, of the predominantly white middle class. So when you go to the work of Tom Segrew and of Massey, Massey and Denton, Arnold Hirsch but but in particular of uh, David Freon they talk about how policymakers were invested in getting citizens to believe that the homes that they got as a result of this policy were the result of their own private initiative but there was so much institutional energy that that, that went into that and that went into getting getting lenders interested in this idea getting lenders to believe that it's that this sort of thing could be profitable and, and in Jackson's Kenneth Jackson's great Crabgrass Frontier, he had this great quote where he says that suburbanization turned home ownership from a rich man's paradise into the normal expectation of the middle class. And to me, that that is a really political story. And I'm always asking the question of why that didn't happen for racial minorities and why that didn't happen for, because to me, that's another way that we could think about how race and capitalism intersect.
1: So, one of the, the claims, you just talked about, for example, how you see the market as a site for political contestation and the growth of suburbia as not only a self fulfilling prophecy, but also an example of political management. People had mm. to s- create value, or at least the perception of value, c- had to create markets. It wasn't just some abstract workings on mechanisms of supply and demand. Right. One of the fascinating parallels that that you draw. In that discussion, is first could you say a few words about what the community reinvestment movement is? But as a precursor to that, maybe talk about why you compare the FHA to the Freemansboro, and, and, mm. well, and what lessons we can learn from both of those. Why is something that happened right after the end of the Civil War so relevant for understanding housing policies a century later?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So the community reinvestment is just sort of a sort of a broad umbrella term for a movement that really emerged out of the civil rights movement and it was very much intertwined with uh, i think i think there is a narrative that this was one of the the more conservative appendages of the civil rights movement you know in my research I'm, i i see all the time that it was very intertwined with what we would call the the black freedom movement the but the black power movement but the emphasis was on changing the financial institutions that really shaped the mainstream American economy. Um, And I think that it's a story that we don't talk about probably quite as much as we should, because community reinvestment uh, movement activists won some, what I would think of as some really important political gains. Uh, For example, the only reason why we today can track discrimination in lending is because the fight to get banks to take that data, to record that data, so that that data can be um, accessible to folks who want to say that? Who want to demonstrate that there is really a pattern, a, a pattern of racial disparity? That's one and probably the best known example of of what the Community Reinvestment Act achieved. And and in my work, I'm not really focusing specifically on, on on the Community Reinvestment Act. Nor am I sort of trying to make the claim that this is this was a perfect movement and and it it didn't have any weaknesses or flaws. I was just sort of trying to situate the history of this movement within a history of the present because ultimately I'm trying to sort of describe how do we get what we think of today as the affordable housing industry. There's a story behind that and what was interesting to me is that the community reinvestment movement was a big part of that particular story.
1: And part of what you claim is that one reason, excuse me, black activists turned toward a community reinvestment strategy was because of problems they had with the state. Can you talk a little bit about, for example, the problems that Robert Weaver and others had at the FHA?
0: I'm so glad you asked that, Michael, because this is like one of the things that I've been really interested in. Because, you know, like so, so sometimes when I have these conversations, people think, you know, why, why are you focusing on these movements that obviously they don't really contain a lot of possibility because they're just operating within the parameters of capitalism. And, and this is one of the points that I that I often make is that one of the reasons why people target markets a lot of the time is that other structures of opportunity are closed. And, and I think that is particularly true when, when you look at some of the efforts being made, both the bottom-up efforts and the top-down efforts that were made around trying to expand public assistance for low-income folks. There were just so many different problems. And so a lot of my research is steeped in kind of detailing all of the, the different challenges that folks ran into, whether we're talking about activists or whether we're talking about government policymakers, when they try to expand public assistance and more specifically expand housing assistance for low-income folks and racial minorities in, in, in particular. And so one example is, you mentioned Robert Weaver. He was the first chief of the what today we we call the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And I think he's a really interesting... Figure that more people could should think about. There's a g- great book on him called Robert C. Weaver in the American City, I think. But he was like one of, he was like one of the black, uh, the first really powerful black policymakers. And I think that he brought with him a lot of energy from the civil rights movement and from. His earlier involvement in the fight to get public housing in the first place, that was, that was happening around the time of the New Deal, the public housing movement, as they called it. So anyways, you know, he bought these, and it was really only because of him that some of these programs and some of the expansions of public housing that we saw during the 60s actually happened. That didn't come from, from Kennedy or Johnson as much as it came from actually Robert C. Weaver. But long story short, he faced a lot of opposition, both from real estate groups from, from conservative politician groups and from homeowner groups who mobilized against projects when they were built in their communities and who took their campaigns to Washington. And all of these things together, Weaver in particular, and this is only one example, but Weaver in particular was sort of hamstrung by the opportunities available, which sent him more toward channeling subsidies through the private market.
1: So one of the other obstacles you talk about that was State-sponsored in, in terms of housing for Black folks was you quote Baldwin, of course, you know the famous quote: "Urban renewal being really Negro removal." And in the streets of Chicago, we had a different way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can you talk about the impact of, of urban renewal on some of these activists and how it shaped their strategies.
0: Yeah, urban renewal was interesting because on the one hand, it was money that was going you know a lot of times how we narrate that era of history it's like all the resources are going to the suburbs but actually urban renewal is an example of how resources were going into the inner city but they just weren't going to black communities and more specifically they were being used to displace black communities who were seen as hindering the project of revitalizing downtown areas and and making cities more hospitable to the white middle class families who were then deserting in large numbers, and so one of the stories about urban renewal is that urban officials were, in fact, really worried about this white flight, and they were really interested in sort of in attracting white families back to the city, and and, and to a large extent, urban renewal money was used for that purpose.
1: So one of the organizations you talk about that was part of the community reinvestment movement is one that in Chicago we're very familiar with, at least. A generation ago, people were familiar with, and it still exists today, and that's the Woodlawn Organization. Can you say a little bit about the, the role that the rise and fall of the Woodlawn Organization and how that played out in response to some of the forces you've been talking about?
0: Yeah, yeah, and, I w- and I'll and i be ha- interested to hear you on this, Michael, as well, because you, you have some sort of framework for understanding the, the two organizations well. I mean, for me, the two organization was interesting as an example of the kind of groups that made up the community reinvestment movement. They were one of the earliest groups, but then there were lots of other groups involved as well. But to me, they were, they were, they were exemplars of the kind of group that made up that movement. group that was, on the one hand, very much involved in uh, political fights against slumlords, against city officials, against the power brokers that we think of in urban settings. Uh, but on the other hand, also, they built housing and they saw themselves as using their productive role in the housing market to make a difference and to provide opportunities that wouldn't otherwise exist for for their constituents. To me, what's interesting about not only two, but also uh, the, the Woodlawn organization, but also the other groups, is how they thought about all this stuff in a way that was intertwined. And it's things that I think today we separate. We think of some groups as being market-focused and other groups as being political. And I think these groups were all of it in part because of this point that they saw both the market and the sort of public budget as a part of the same battlefield.
1: And part of what you describe is some of the problems they ran into. What were some of the financial difficulties they had?
0: Some of the m- more predictable ones were that, you know, these were really under-resourced groups. And, and so one of the things, and this is why I show that they really saw this as a struggle to get power mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the market and not only for access, because I think that they knew that they were competing against better resourced developers and the and and developers who had a different idea about how development money should be used. So and so for them it was about how do we kind of create a landscape where we can kind of exist or uh, and we can kind of we can compete with these developers not for the same people but for resources so there, so because you know other developers were not about housing low income folks what what they were really competing for was for resources because these organizations, like the Woodlawn organization, to say whatever else we might say about them, they were about housing low-income folks, and, and so and, and so. This is why I think that they saw it as as a question of how do we get resources.
1: I think one of the things that you talk about, and I think it's important because you did ask me about a little bit of feedback on my perspective. Yeah, and please. this is a little bit more from my personal experience and less from my, you know, my sc- scholarly work. Is that a lot of the? This I think is true. Of the Black movement. At any time but certainly during the middle to late late 60s through the 70s is that there was in chicago we had a lot of organizations and i was a kid i wasn't part of any of them (laughs) but my family was involved uh, quite heavily and i would say on the wrong side at least Mm. half the family Uh, were heterogeneous. So we had very powerful street organizations like the Blackstone R- Rangers and the Devil's Disciples. There's a very mm-hmm. strong political movement within, the, within them, but there's also a what can only be called a criminal element as well. And yeah. th- There was internal tensions. Within movements like, some within some of the nationalist movements, you know, it's, it's Relatively well known about the tensions within the nation of Islam during the middle 60s between those who wanted a more activist political role when they saw it as their champion Malcolm X, and others who saw a more conservative religious role. The same thing was true in the TWO as well. I mean, there were those who there was there were street activists, there were those who were you know middle class business people. There there was all sorts of different elements competing, and one of the things I think that gets uh, overlooked is the degree to which all these different groups had to deal with the state. Mm. And uh, and I think the state in both roles. I mean, we know about the assassination of Fred Hampton and assassination, at least those people, people in Chicago, of a lot of other c- black militants at the same time, not just Mark Clark and Fred Hampton. But it's also, there was also an active move of not just coercion, but co optation. Mm. Uh, if you want to do, you, we'll let you do business in the in this city, but under these terms.
0: Right, right. And the
1: Dawson organization, the Daily organization were. Uh, particularly the Dawson organization, or the daily organization tended more toward the coercion side. The Dawson organization was certainly able to do the um, coercion side, but also was very adept at, co- at co-opting leaders mm. uh, and elements so that the, there would be a counterbalance to some of the more militant elements on, that were on the street.
0: I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's and very so, interesting.
1: And so I think there's a mistake... I don't see this in your work, but I think there's a mistake, and sometimes when I read h- social movement histories, of seeing these organizations, we can use another example, the Black Panther Party, as heterogeneous organizations, without understanding the sort of tensions of various types within those organizations that different political tendencies, different economic tendencies. Mm. And the really, I mean, I think this is something you talk about, this is something that Nathan Connolly talking about, what are the real parameters what, you know, the, in Gromchen terms, what's the terrain these groups are working within? They can't right. make every choice. <laughs> Some yeah. choices are ruled out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. The, and so they're trying to navigate something that's very complicated and with, so that has a lot of danger, dangerous elements to it.
0: Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know what? What you just said, Michael, I think really put your finger on, you know, something that I struggle with a lot here because you mentioned this term co-optation and I think that that's ever present. You know, it, it, it's it's something that I, I always have to think about as i'm uh, as I'm reading through this material, and one of the things that I'm still grappling with, and I will, you know I'm curious to know what your thoughts of it is that you know I think one of the issues here is that it's actually empirically sometimes sort of difficult to really name to really properly characterize what the situation is in situations where it's not outright confrontation because a lot of times. Especially when you look at these community based groups, a lot of the literature is about how they have these exchange relationships with like local officials. And mm-hmm. a lot of researchers are actually pretty insistent on on saying that the community- based groups actually have a lot of say in these relationships. And you know, and it's and it's an empirical question. We can kind of look at you know what what evidence're talking about. But I think that it raises a theoretical question of at what point can we say that people who don't have a lot of power, are exercising some influence and and what are the implications of that and and at what point does that lead into what we refer what we might refer to as co-optation or are they always sort of coexistent? I'm not sure, but what, what do you think on that?
1: So one of the ways I I, mean, I think there's two two polls I mean there's certainly the sort of revolutionary action and militant action poll that we that is identifiable in black politics mm-hmm. and then I know this from my family's history and being around the second war democratic organization there's an awful lot of bribery i mean <laughs> you know <laughs> i will pay you ten thousand dollars and give you other benefits that i can't talk about on the air if you sell out your organization that's co-optation but now with right, right there's a lot of gray area in between <laughs> <laughs> right good way of putting it right. and i think what the gray area needs is a lot of careful historical work you know, for contemporary movements, careful ethnographic work. And one of the things I think we have to be better at is try to understand the choices that people saw they had. Hmm. And we can ask the question about why do they think these were the choices they had? And we can you know, disagree with that or not, but I think we, we have to start there. What, what, what was the choice that the people saw? You know, what, o- what options did they see as being on the table?
0: Yeah. And then
1: within that context, what choices did they make and why?
0: That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it's really uh, practicable in mm-hmm. a sense of like as a researcher, you know, how to actually, you know, put that into action as we are actually really wading through the materials. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of my a good portion of my
1: first two thirds of my career were on public opinion work, and one of the jobs of political organizations is framing, which is to change people's ideals about what choices they actually have, have available to them. And one of the things I think we can do both in historical movements and contemporary movements is look at what, p- what are the political organizations that are on the ground saying these are the choices that you have. Hmm. And w- how, do, how does that perception of the choice set p- uh, change over time? What, what, to what degree is political agency and mobilization having an effect on those?
0: I see. I see. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to write that down. Well,
1: <laughs> political <laughs> scientists occasionally have something to contribute. To.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <yeah.
1: laughs> So, one of the, th- recently there's been some s- newspaper reports and the like about, that suggest um, fairly strongly that in Chicago, black and minority neighborhoods are extraordinarily overtaxed and subsidized undertaxed, predominantly white neighborhoods. It's, from what I re- read in your paper, it seems like that pattern also played a role in some T.W.O.'s problems. Is that correct? And the question of how property taxes were being implemented in Chicago.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this gets to know, I, I have another project uh, on that, too, that I can t- t- talk to you about in a little bit. But, yeah, so, you know, one of the reasons why, when, when, when federal officials made these different efforts t- to create m- pots of money that could be used by private market actors to create low income housing you know these were specific efforts that they started doing in the in the 1960s or so and one of the things that 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 really hampered those efforts was the fact that th- the many different ways in which the space in low income communities were just priced and conceptualized economically in much different ways than in white communities and so one way so one example of that is through the is through the tax system and how many of these communities even the most disadvantaged communities are ironically have some of the highest tax rates especially mm-hmm. in the in the in, in the Chicago area and and then what that meant in practice was that financial packages that seemed like they should work out actually couldn't work in these communities because the property taxes were so burdensome
1: right so and that gets me to my n- next question then we could start talking a little bit about some of your other work as well and is and talk about also talk about the democratizing economies and to what degrees it possible. But one of the I saw fascinating stories you tell, one that I was unfamiliar with, was the role that the state and private interests had in reshaping the perception of value of property within inner cities through the r- through the use of tax shelters. Can you mm-hmm. say can you say more about that? And then how the y- community group sort of adapted that as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, this is kind of the, the meat of one of my chapters in the book because it is really a key part of the story about how we came to allocate and administer housing policy through the tax code. And and, and when you pose the question in that way, one of the key chapters in that story is this, this chapter about the rise of what we call a tax shelter industry, which more broadly speaking, this was just a way that commercial developers lobbied the treasury and just kept up constant pressure on, the, on on the treasury to give them these really lucrative tax benefits that were associated with real estate. And the biggest one, even though there were lots of them, were the biggest one was about depreciation, is, is the fact that uh, the tax code actually rewards what it sees as entrepreneurial risk-taking on the part of, for example, a developer. It rewards that by giving back money for pro- for the natural process of property depreciation. One of the things that community-based groups did was that you know they I think realized at some point that this was really the only way that they could get capital and and also use capital in at least relatively speaking on their own terms because all of the other pots of money were closed. You know we, we're getting back to the. The question that you raise about political opportunity structure and thinking about what are the options on the table, and and lots of other options were closed. The 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 mortgage money was going to the suburbs. The urban renewal money was going to downtown commercial elites, and you know there were gatekeepers for both of these uh, pots of money that wouldn't give money to low income neighborhoods for deeply institutionalized reasons. And so the tax shelter industry was just kind of this thing that was created by developers that community-based groups kind of latched onto. And and the reason why it worked, ironically, and this is a little sad, is because it's more about the property than the people. There There are these assumptions about this natural process that property depreciates, and then so you get these benefits, and it's not really tied to who's living there. and It's not really tied to the race of the folks who occupy the buildings, but it's tied more to this assumption about how property naturally depreciates. And I think that that's an interesting quirk of the story, but it very much leads directly into our our situation today where everything is allocated around the tax code.
1: So what's been the response to your paper? I know you presented it a few times in a few different settings.
0: It's been really uh, informative for me so far. It's been really informative. As you know, it's a still a work in progress, and it's it's a chapter in a, in a, in a larger book. So I've really benefited from these conversations. And, and in particular, like I said, I, I kind of started off thinking mostly about social policy and the state. And so it's been very eye-opening for me to move even closer into really thinking specifically in terms of racial capitalism, because I think that that really... Moves the needle for me analytically on sort of how I can kind of tell this story.
1: One of the aspects, in fact, is in the title of your book, is the the rise of finance. Has that become more of a part of the story as you've gone on?
0: Yes, because one of the things that's really distinctive about our system today is that it's we you know what I would call it's it's pretty completely financialized. You know, it's fun it's financialized in some different ways. One is that these tax benefits are exchanged on secondary markets and so some ways these tax benefits even though we don't think of them in that way are financial commodities because bruce carruthers at northwest he he's writing a book where he defines finance as the transactions that we call financial are really just based on promises they are based on exchange of present money for future money and and involved in that is always some conception of a promise and that's Meaningful here because the promise here is not a return on a stock or a return on a bond as much as it's about a promised return that by investing in low income housing you'll get a certain amount of time of a deduction of your dollar for dollar tax liability. So it's more lucrative than so, than say a reduction of taxable income. It's really a, a reduction of the of the real money that you would have to pay for taxes. And so. The, the companies that, that, that get these tax credits often don't really have to pay any taxes whatsoever. It's very lucrative. And so it's financial in the sense that it's a really lucrative tax benefit for financial sector firms, especially the largest ones like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, and things like that. But it's also about the, the type of the transaction itself is a financial transaction. And so the point is that instead of allocating a lot of this through the public budget as we used to, all of this is being arranged through financial investors and developers, and in part through the lure of a lucrative tax benefit.
1: So one of the strong takeaways from th-
0: your work is that,
1: one, the way the market operates or way the economic system more accurately operates is that housing policy is often being run by the developers. You just said this about five minutes ago for economic and political elites and not for the people in those neighborhoods. And that the corollary of that is that housing activists in the 60s and 70s, and and to this day, are working in a terrain where a lot of, for, because of the workings of racial capitalism, there's a lot of opportunities or lanes of change that are blocked um, Mm. by the same forces. Right. So, in your opinion, what would a democratized housing market, a democratized economy, look like? That more where you had a housing policy for a housing policy that more served people in neighborhoods, particularly in disadvantaged neighborhoods, what would have to change?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So there's one question of what would a better situation look like, and then the other is would that better situation still be within the context of capitalism, or do we need to get you know beyond that bigger change to get to an even better situation? And so. I would say I'm not sure that I have great answers to either of those questions, but I would say something like Kamala Harris is introducing an idea recently, and it's an idea that has been put forward by housing advocacy groups for some time, which is a a, a renter's tax credit, which I think is an interesting idea to, to to think about because it goes even further toward sort of trying to reverse how we have Criminalize and penalize renting in our society, as opposed to home ownership. There, there are lots of different ways you look at this, because for Black people, home ownership itself is also not secure. No, not so. And so one way of thinking about that, you know, the the soundbite that we always hear is expand home ownership, but you know we have a lot of people renting. We can also make renting itself more secure, and so that's that's one sort of pragmatic way you might think about how how some of this stuff may play out. And so. It'll be a little bit different from the tax credit because with the tax credit, so much of the benefit is going to developers into these sort of white collar financiers. And if we can have a system where we really make renting more secure, both through like property rights and also through through like the sort of benefits that people get through, through the tax code as renters as you know like most most low income renters pay w- more than half of their yeah. incomes on rent which is like not sustainable so i mean that would be like one pragmatic answer to that but to the broader question of how do you replicate that on a broader scale and how do you sort of transform society so that our society more and more mirrors an equitable economy i mean I say this in my work, and I will continue to say, it like I say, I don't think that exists apart from political agitation and from from fighting. Now, as far as ideologically, I, I would say that I'm not entirely sure about what best is the program for going forward. But I do know that I think that these things that we think of as economics, that the way forward is is through more political contestation and agitation.
1: One of the one of the questions I would probably mean, one of the I would probably add to that, is that part of what we have to do, given the history of first oh, HOLLC under the New Deal, the FHA, and the disinvestment and the blocking of investment in these communities, is uh, trying to do something that the community reinvestment movement was very much centered on, which is how do we increase investment in poor neighborhoods? And the, you mm. know, the rent creditors helps renters to some degree, but we also need to bring resources back into these communities right, as right. communities as well. And again, we have to, th- and, and I think the one thing you, I mean, I mean, one of the key aspects of what you just said is that that's going to take political agitation. <laughs> mm, <you're laughs> um, right. <laughs> the, the people are going to have to be forced to say, we need to put the resources here and not there. Because <laughs> they've been going Absolutely. there for Absolutely. a long time. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, so, so in that sense, it's a fight just like every other fight that we study, you yeah. know. Yeah.
1: So what's some of the next projects you're working on? I know you're working hard on the book. What else do you have uh, on the table?
0: Yeah, yeah. the book has taken up uh, most of my time now. I am also collaborating on another project with a sociologist at Brown University. His name is Josh Peschewitz. And we just uh, completed a paper where we look at what you brought up earlier about the punitive fines and fees in the Chicago area. These these monetary fines that that really became a big part of the discussion post-Ferguson, but that have always been kind of a part of how low-income communities are policed. That means oftentimes that they're being levied these really excessive fines for like really small offenses. And in a lot of the small municipalities, this is one of the main things that actually finances, you know, this is one of the main things that keep the lights on in local government is, exactly. is sort of, is sort of finding like And so we, we did a paper on that, thinking about why some Chicago area suburbs rely more on these sorts of punitive fees than, than, than others. And, and, and there's, and there's Totally a race story there as well. The paper is all around about what in the paper we call racialized fiscal strain, which is really just about how the the racialized ways that local governments are able to to sustain themselves. Because the punitive fines and fees were concentrated in racial minority communities that did not have the same access to property taxes. And that for that reason, actually overtaxed their citizens in part because they don't get the investment that the other suburbs get you know the the sort of commercial the big box retailers and all all these kind of things they don't go to these communities and so these are the communities where even though we think of the suburb as places where you kind of like move you know you move up the economic ladder these are places where a vastly disproportionate amount of the people's household wealth are being taken through taxes and through other stuff just because these communities are systematically underdeveloped in their capacity to get access to the good revenues. Um, and, and that's again goes back to this same process of 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 racially uneven development that we've been talking about.
1: And that's linked to two other well, maybe three other stories as well. Because the ch- old Chicago model of having rich suburbs and a poor inner city, we're going back to a much more developing world model of poor suburbs <laughs> surrounding yeah, a rich that's true. rich central yeah. city. And one of the consequences r- and one of the some of the mechanisms for that in Chicago is that when in Chicago those housing towers that were, were, were you know Cabrini green, Robert Taylor home, Stateway Gardens were torn down, those folks were pushed out of the city and mm. one of the, one of the so one of the aspects of a lot of those uh, communities is they have all the problems of in the inner city of Chicago without anything like the resources of Chicago, even as much as Chicago poor communities are disadvantaged there's even fewer services available in these what resource strained communities. And one of the things Bingo. I've been wondering about, and this is actually an open question for me, is to what degree you think about an extraction model? Because, mm. you know, local governments are extracting resources out of these poor black communities that have yeah. very little political power, even less economic power, as yeah. a way to sustain themselves.
0: Hmm, that's a, I like that extraction. Yeah, yeah, I like that because. They're extracting and that, and at the same time filtering because you know some of these affluent communities are extracting resources but also limiting who can actually live there. Yeah. At the same exact time, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think
0: we've done well. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> this was yeah. Fun. Thank you. Yeah. This was fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and can I can I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, okay, this will be the last one, but. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, how did you come, because, oh, you know, if I could take the indulgence of just <laughs> asking you about, you know, the, the arc of your career, you know, how did you sort of come to this intersection of race and capitalism yourself?
1: So it's sort of interesting in a sense from a personal story is that what I thought I was going to study in grad school was political economy. Mm-hmm. And partly was when I was an undergraduate, some of Wilson's, William Julius Wilson's key works came out and of course, Grabbed anybody that was thinking about black politics, black studies, uh, black ins, blacks and blacks in social sciences. But when I got to grad school, there was absolutely no mechanisms for studying political economy, at least in terms of race and political economy, within political science at the time. And for exa- and then when I got to my first job, I was told by the graduate secretary, only Marxists do political economy. We don't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> And <laughs> I, for a change, held my tongue. <laughs> and so this is actually going back to some of the questions I was initially interested in, which is the intersection. I mean, growing up um, in Chicago and seeing d- how you could have communities that were racialized, but extremely affluent, right mm-hmm. next door to communities that were racialized and very poor, You yet poor white communities, and how that developed politically and unequal life chances was something I've been interested in a long time. So um, when black Marxism came out and people started talking about racial capitalism in a new way and then the increasing um, discussion pioneered, pioneered by people like Robin Kelly at UCLA and others, this was fairly close to being a natural way for me to think about continuing thinking I about see, black politics and black studies.
0: Okay, awesome. Say yeah, that makes sense when you put it like that. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on RacingCapitalism.com. That is RacingCapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.